Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me as I interview and promote living composers. In this series of interviews, I talk with composers about their musical journeys, their past successes and setbacks, and their current projects. For more information about this podcast, as well as a complete archive of episodes, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is John Muleisen. Though based in Seattle, Washington, John's works have been performed by ensembles throughout the world, including, to name a few, The Esoterics, Conspirare, Musa Horti, Cocopelli's Oran Choir, Seattle Permusica, and the St. Olaf Choir. He has served as composer in residence for Seattle's Opus 7 Vocal Ensemble since 1996, as well as terms with the Dale Warland Singers and Choral Arts Northwest. John has been the recipient of many awards, including the Louisville Orchestra's Orchestral Composition Competition Award, the Dale Warland Singers Commission Award, and most recently, he was awarded the 2020 American Prize in Composition for Major Choral Works in the Professional Choral Division for his oratorio, But Who Shall Return Us Our Children? A Kipling Passion. John Muleisen, thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. It's a joy to be with you, Steve. Thanks. So I know you've had a pretty full composing schedule for the past several years, how has it been to slow down a little bit while quarantining at home? You know, it's um, you're not supposed to say this as a composer, but I'll say it, it's really been a, a great opportunity. Um, you know, the commissions are not there right now. Uh, I do have one that'll be coming up in like, February or so. Um, but this time has been great to get some stuff done around the house. Got new garage doors put in. Got new fences built. I didn't do it myself. I am not a handyman. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, to have a chance to get caught up on the inevitable long list of things that we should be doing both personally and professionally, um, when we're so busy that we can't get to them. So it's been a good, uh, good opportunity to get my website, uh, populated with more of my choral works and, uh, and to start considering a newsletter, which I don't have yet, uh, and also a Facebook artist page. So I have a good bit to do on the marketing side. So it's been great to have that time. Yeah, so I'm I'm just curious, when you do sit down to compose, do you have any rituals or habits, things that you need to do before you're ready to write? Do you need like silence or or, or what's your ritual? That's a great question. Um, I don't think I'm very ritualistic as a composer. I think I have some disciplines, mm-hmm. uh, you might say. Um, so probably first and foremost amongst those is, is, is how I approach text. Um, I've, I've evolved this process that I actually share with my students. I have a studio of about a little over a dozen private composition students. And so I've evolved this process that involves really deep analysis of text. Because for me, as a composer, the text comes first. My job is to serve the text. My job is to, to develop an understanding of the text and an interpretation of the text, and then to let that text organically generate the music. That's what I try to do at least. So I really take the text, internalize it through analysis and many different kinds of ways of reading that text, of emphasizing certain things. Um, And then I let that kind of sit and stew for a while. And then I I, I have that text with me all the time. It's on my iPhone. I'm constantly looking at it. If I go out for a walk, I may you know, wake up in the middle of the night, I'll whip out my iPhone and I'll look at that text and see if anything comes to me. And so I like to let the, the text generate the music. I call it kind of an organic process. And uh, I try not to go to the keyboard also, uh, initially at least. I try to let that text be the progenitor of the music. And I usually start by singing it, not by playing it. And of course, yeah. I don't have perfect pitch, so I can't, <laughs> I, can't, I can't get it all out of my head and onto the page. But uh, I go to the piano later. You know, in preparation for this interview today, you shared your your full catalog with me, which was amazing. So I was interested, though, in the fact that your instrumental works go back to about 1976, while your choral works begin around 1984. So did you begin as an instrumentalist? I did. I did. Um, I had kind of a, a late late start, I think, probably, as a, as a musician. It wasn't until seventh grade. And um, I my mother signed me up for, in seventh grade, for what the first semester was introduction to music, the second semester was introduction to art. And I have no artistic skills in terms of visual arts <laughs> whatsoever. My father was a really fine illustrator, cartoonist, 
in addition to being a, a policeman, <laughs> it's an odd, you know, skill set. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I didn't, I didn't get those genes, um, and so I apparently showed some some proclivity for for music, some some aptitude for music. And at the end of this time, this introduction to music class, the the band teacher who was teaching the class came up to a whole group of us and he said, "Hey, you guys really show a lot of aptitude for music." I'm thinking of starting a second beginning band. So I said, oh, great. I don't care what I'm going to play. If I can get out of the art class because I know I will totally suck at it, uh, I will, I'll say yes. So because I was a tall kid for a seventh grader, I got a tenor saxophone. And um, that's what I ended up doing my, uh, my bachelor's in, with saxophone mm -hmm. performance. But I remember when I got the instrument, we rented it. You know, We got it home, and I, I had no instruction in it yet. So I started putting the thing together. It was very obvious where the, the neck piece went, right? You know, got a long curved body and then the neck piece. And then there was this thing, this mouthpiece thing and this reed thing. So I put them together best I could. And I remember when I first started playing, it was upside down. <laughs> the reed was on top. And I thought, this is very uncomfortable. I'm not sure if I'm cut out for this. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you got that sorted out. <laughs> so what precipitated the shift to choral music? Well, I had uh, I had sung in, in choir in, in high school for the my junior and senior years. The um, the choir teacher at some point uh, decided he was going to do a raid on the band room. So our our music building was choir one side, band the other side, or instru instrumental the other side. So the choir teacher did a raid on all the the band students and recruited a whole bunch of us to sing in choir, and it was a great experience. I mean it. It was humbling because I was a good sight reader on my saxophone, but I had never had any experience singing. So to not just be able to blow and push keys, you know, I had to actually learn those notes. I had to develop my ear. So choir mm -hmm. was so good for me in developing my ear and introducing me to a whole different uh, range of music and different different genre. Um, I was so busy during my undergrad and, and graduate work that I didn't sing in choir, but later I sang in choir. Uh, uh, in uh, you know in churches later in life so um, but what got me to compose my very first choral piece were, which were these five Lenten psalms um, I ended up uh, through a friend meeting a music director at a Catholic church down in Sacramento where I grew up and he found out I was a, a composer a budding composer at that time and so he invited me to write this set of Lenten psalms um, for a, it was it was premiered at a Catholic liturgical conference just for the for the diocese, mm -hmm. and so that was my very first choral piece. And soon after that, um, he asked me to write a Magnificat. So those were my first two choral pieces in 1984, and I didn't didn't write any more choral pieces until probably about 95. Uh, so you mentioned your higher education, your undergrad in California, uh, and then you did your master's in Washington State. And then in Indiana, you did some further studies there. I know you studied with numerous composers. So looking back, what lessons do you remember learning during your studies that still have an influence on you today? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think, you know, I can think of a, a couple of, of things that I even I share with my students these days, too. Um, at a, a study with John Eaton, who was mainly an opera and vocal composer, uh, pretty avant-garde into a lot of microtonal stuff, um, and you know this was not something that I uh, necessarily embraced. I mean, I found it fascinating, but um, but he had some very practical things. And one of the things he told me, and I still practice this to this day, he says, in terms of the form of the piece, he said, don't dive right into the piece. He said, when you when you compose your work, make sure that it it has uh, kind of bookends, right? It has a frame, so he was very much into into art, and so he likened it to the notion of of uh, you know artworks, most artworks, not a lot of abstract expressionist artworks which are frameless, right? But he said had they have frames. He said make sure you have a frame on your piece, something that that kind of eases the listener into it, and that then ushers them out. And uh, I really liked that concept, and I've tried to use it a lot in my own work. And I'll tell you, I think it really works. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, a work doesn't just kind of start with the main argument, uh, just as an, a, a fine orator doesn't just hop into their main 
point, right, in a speech. So I think uh, even a, a work such as Beethoven's Fifth, which has a very short frame at the beginning, you know, and the yup, up, up, bum, 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 that's the frame. Then he goes into the argument, but there's still a frame. Um, and I thought that was a fascinating concept, and I, I share that with my students. Yeah, so when you're creating your frame, are you trying to uh, capture the same mood or um, motivic ideas, or what? how are you creating that frame? That's a, that's a, a that you, you've pretty much hit it right there. Okay. Right? You're establishing a mood, right? You're, you're kind of, you're setting the tone for the work, right? So getting the, the, the listeners kind of set to hear the main part of the piece. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, every piece is, is different. Every text is different. So every frame is different. But it really is kind of setting a tone, helping us make that transition from the, the workaday world. You know, we, we come into a concert. We've had our day. We've had all the things we do during the day. We sit down and we're ready to hear music. But we need that kind of that transition into the piece. So did you always want to be a composer? Like, what did you want to be when you were six? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, uh, I'm not sure I wanted to be any particular thing, but I do remember, and thought about this for years, I do remember uh, Mrs. Booth, my my, uh, first grade teacher, right? What she had us do was she had these big, big rolls of butcher paper, right? Mm -hmm. And we laid down on the butcher paper, and then she draws an outline of your body. You put your, you know, your arms down at your side, draws an outline of your body. And then you kind of do artwork. You paint what you want to be. And I remember that I painted a fireman. So I had a good, a really good family friend who was a fireman. Uh, so maybe, maybe that was the influence. So uh, your work has been reviewed and acclaimed for decades now. I want, to rev- I want to read this review from Philippa Kirali's review of your premiere of Pieta. It says, Kudos to Muleisen for the courage to spend time on a work and the insight, thoughtfulness, and musicianship with which he has created a major religious piece. So when you are working with a sacred text or a sacred idea, do you approach the work differently than you would if you were working with a purely secular text? I would say yes. Um largely because of the, the subject matter. Um, I, you know, I've gone back and, and over the years listened to various works of mine, kind of re-listened to them because you think, how did that thing fare over time? What does it sound like these days? And one of the things I've noticed is that I've said a lot of Latin works because I've said a lot of things for Opus 7, which does a lot of performances in St. James Cathedral. So, you know, there's that, that history there, liturgical mm-hmm. history. And I listen to these Latin texts that I've set, I think they sound different. Those musical settings sound somehow different than the secular hmm. settings that I do. I can't put my finger on it necessarily. I haven't sat down as a musicologist analyzing my own works. But somehow they do sound different, which leads me to think I approach them differently. But I do know I approach them differently because of the subject matter. So in terms of really trying to understand that text, trying to get into the mindset of that text. So yes, I, I think I do approach them differently. Not necessarily from a, a process standpoint, but just from the subject matter standpoint. Mm-hmm. And certainly I think my own faith informs that too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I as I was preparing this question, the thought came to me, uh, you know, should compositions be, or can they be purely sacred or secular? You know, is that box too limiting? Because it, it seems that sacred music can have influence, you know, in, in worldly things and vice versa, where secular things can give you a sort of spiritual experience while you're listening. So I'm just, I'd like your opinion on that. Well, you know, I, I think the, the person who has put it the best and, and really opened my mind to this was, was Dale Warland. I remember we were driving, we, we did a performance uh, of, a, of a piece of mine, he co- got conducted Opus 7, and we premiered uh, my work Ascended on, on that concert, and we took it down to Portland. We were driving back with him and his wife, Ruth, and we were talking about beauty, the concept of beauty, the concept of sacred, secular. And he said, he said, I think all music is sacred. And I thought, hmm, I need to, I need to hear more about that, Dale. And, and, and I, I, I think I would tend to agree with him, you know, in, in the sense that, uh, you know, what does it mean to be sacred? What does it mean to be sacramental? 
And if you accept the the definition of, of a sacrament being something that kind of is, is, a, is a touch point between, you know, something spiritual and, and ourselves, so whether it's God or whatever, you know, one believes, um, then that that sacramental nature um, of that touch point to something greater than just ourselves um, makes it sacred, makes that experience sacred. Um, and so I, I would agree with him that, that you know, music has a, a sacramental effect, especially the, the concept of beauty. Um, you know, there's one of my favorite quotes is um, by the, the theologian, uh, mid-20th century theologian uh, in the 21st century, Robert McAfee Brown. And he was, uh, he taught at, at Stanford and he also taught at Cal Berkeley and he was a social activist there as well. It goes like this. Where there is beauty apparent, let us enjoy it. Where there is beauty hidden, let us unveil it. Where there is beauty defaced, let us restore it. Where there is no beauty, let us create it. Which just, you know, it, it just tugs at my heart every time I, I, I hear it and think of it and say it. And it's really become kind of an artistic credo. Uh, for me. I think it's fair to say that beauty, uh, I'll say is, I'll, I'll go to the existential route, beauty is sacramental. Uh, the, the softer route would be beauty can be sacramental, right? And, and I, think, I think that notion of bringing beauty into the world is, is, is really a noble cause, um, especially in a, in a world that's so divided right now, you know, and that seems to be getting more and more divided. You know, we've had cycles of division and unification throughout history, of course, but, um, you know, right now in this present day, uh, I think we need beauty. I think beauty is something that can help us transcend the purely political mm -hmm. and the purely social and can really bind us together. I think we can get a bunch of people of a lot of different beliefs sitting in the same room and hearing something beautiful, and that has a, a unifying effect. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. So let's switch from the philosophical to the practical. One of the benchmarks that I think every young composer looks for is their first piece to be published. I know you have a couple pieces that are published by big publishing houses, uh, but the majority of your pieces that you have available are self-published and self-promoted through Northwest Choral Publishers. Uh, two questions. One, why did you decide to self-publish instead of pursuing traditional publishing routes? And two, what is Northwest Choral Publishers? Ah, okay. Um, let me start with the second one. <laughs> uh, Northwest Choral Publishers, uh, I, I guess you could say, is a loose affiliation of uh, four composers, Northwest composers, all pretty much within this Washington State, Greater Seattle region. So myself and um, Brian Galante and Reg Unterzeer and Karen Thomas. And so we had all admired one another's music for years. And we just came up with this idea of, you know, why can't we just kind of merge our resources um, and and help promote one another's music um, and do it in such a way that it's, you can say this is a very practical thing. It's kind of an economy of means, right? Yeah. Um, so as Northwest Choral Publishers, it, by the way, it's not incorporated. It's just, it's loose collection. A loose affiliation, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we, we don't we don't share any kind of like business models or, or you know money comes in and then it's distributed through NWCP. It's it's more that we help one another promote our mm -hmm. music. And so so we can buy an ad in the Coral Journal or in the Voice or some other thing you know um, for a lot less for for you know, twenty five percent per person of, uh -huh. of just one of us taking right. So that has really been very helpful, right? Um, so that, that's what that is, and, and we, we help promote one another's music that way. But in terms of, of self-publishing, um, I have to say this, this whole notion goes back to, uh, uh, like it was in 2000 when I was a finalist for the uh, Dale Warland Carl Ventures um, competition. There were four finalists. It was a fantastic, fantastic program they had. What they did was they took... Um, these four finalists, and they gave us all sorts of different experiences back there when we went back in June for these reading sessions of the pieces that they had commissioned. One of them was a publishing workshop, publishing seminar. 
And at that seminar was um, somebody from Augsburg, and then also uh, Augsburg Publishing, and also Stephen Paulus. And mm -hmm. so Stephen was, was you know, arguing for the, the self-publishing side. And I, I hadn't even thought about that before. Um, so that planted the seed a couple of, let's see how long after that, about six years, maybe four, six years after that, I went to uh, my first Course America conference, I think it was in Pittsburgh, and I met Fran Richards. Now, Fran was at the time the, the, the vice president in charge of, of concert music with ASCAP. And so I was an ASCAP composer, I was registered as a composer, but I wasn't registered as a publisher and it never occurred to me to register as a publisher because I'm not a publisher. And so she said, okay, well now, let's see now, do you, uh, you compose and uh, do you, do you publish your own music? I said, oh no, I, you know, I've got a you know, piece published here, like Dale uh, published uh, my Snow the King's Trumpeter in his uh, series with Kolobocha, and that was the first piece I had published. But other than that, I didn't have anything else published. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not a publisher. She said, well, if somebody wants some of your other music, you surely you have other music, what do they do? I said, well, they just contact me and I, you know, they can buy it from me. Well, you're a publisher. I said, oh, <laughs> I guess I am. <laughs> and she said, are you signed up with ASCAP as a publisher member? I said, no, I didn't think I could. When you get home, you do that. That's the first thing you do when you get home. And she was, she, Fran is an amazing force of nature and she's just so encouraging. So that, those were two very uh, kind of epiphanies for me. Um, and so I thought, okay, I'll do that. And one of the things that Stephen talked about was the difference between what you get paid when you have pieces published in a traditional manner and also how much you can earn on your own. So, you know, it's, it's basically 10% as, uh, as a, a being published by somebody else and you give them your copyright. Um, you don't license it, you don't sell it, you just give it to them. So, I, you know, as a, as a published composer, if it's other than self-publishing, you don't have the right to even print out your own music anymore. Right. Which seemed odd to me. Um, anyway, when I decided to leave the software industry back in 2010 and do composition full-time, um, I thought, oh, I need to figure out what my business model is going to be. So I started to run the numbers, and that's why I decided to do self-publishing. So I know in addition to composing, you're a teacher as well. You mentioned you have a private studio. Are you teaching mostly composition, or do you teach other things as well? Uh, it's, it's mostly composition. I mean, as, as part of that, if, if people want a kind of a refresher on music theory, oral skills, uh, aural skills, I should say, if they've never had uh, much music theory, um, I go ahead and include that as part of the curriculum. But mm -hmm. I try to design curriculum specific to each student depending on their needs and their goals. Nice. So what do you do when you're not teaching or composing? What do you do to relax? I love hiking. I love going for walks. Um, it's, um, it's one of my great joys. I, it relaxes me more than almost anything else. Do you ever do any big hikes like up Mount Rainier or anything? <laughs> no, <laughs> not in my physical condition at this point. I need hospitalization, uh, before I got to the top. Um, but, uh, no, nothing that, uh, that extensive. Um, my wife and I like to go on day hikes and we love to travel too. Yeah. Um, We've traveled to you know, various places. One of the best trips we ever took was to Barcelona, and just oh, absolutely loved it. You know, a lot of a lot of couples when they travel, they don't get along as well as maybe when they do at home. But we we actually even get along better. So we say we should be traveling most of. The time. <laughs> That's great. All right. Well, after a quick break, we'll have a chance to explore some of John's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with John Muleisen. So let's start with a healthy snack. Your three-movement work, Eat Your Vegetables, set one for SATB Choir and Clarinet. So I've always been drawn to pieces that sort of juxtapose the silly and serious. Eat Your Vegetables is, of course, a phrase that most of us have heard countless times growing up. So what was the genesis of this collection? This is a, a very unique and special uh, genesis of this piece. Um, had a dear friend named Joanne Gunnarsson, who, by the way, was a lute, a PLU grad uh, in music, and um, sang the choir down there. Uh, this was back in the 50s. 
And she was a friend of ours from church and just a delightful person. And she kind of early on when we moved here adopted us, uh, as it were, and had us over with her family for Thanksgiving and sometimes for Christmas and um, just a real a real joy. And, and what a wit, a rapier wit, as they say, right? And so um, she had written these very clever poems about vegetables. <laughs> and so uh, she showed these to me, and uh, Lynn said, you have to set these. And I said, you're right. And uh, there are six of them, so there's two sets of three. And, and I decided to include them as sets because it just, it just made more sense because they're pretty short. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I, I set them for the, – the first set is for, as you said, choir and clarinet. Set two is for choir, trumpet, and percussion. And most of these pieces are, um, I would say, parodies of, of you know, existing sorts of musical forms. So, um, you know, the second one in set one, uh, a version of Carrots, is, uh, is, is, a, is a jazz sort of parody. Uh, the third one, Raw, I, 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 I think I invented this kind of thing for myself oh, that I call a hybrid parody. Um, and so it's, it's a hybrid parody of... Uh, of, of Western film, you know, uh, soundtracks and, and cheerleading squads. <laughs> so that's, and then like the, the first one uh, called uh, Aubergine in set two is, uh, it's about eggplants. Um, it's about, I guess what I would say is Japanese koto music and Miles Davis ballads trumpet ballads with muted trumpet so it it it, it was it's such a fun project do these pieces reflect your own opinion of vegetables (laughs) (laughs) um are you a big fan of rutabaga and just can't stand carrots (laughs) not a big fan of rutabagas um uh, or rhubarb for that matter um uh carrots uh i i have mixed feelings about carrots um (laughs) So uh, maybe, maybe there is some, maybe I'm channeling my my maybe. Um, my vegetable angst through. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to listen to uh, some highlights from set one of Eat Your Vegetables. Hey! 
All right, I'd like to talk next about the Star Still Shine for SATB Acapella Choir. So, as I understand, this piece was the result of receiving the 2014 Dale Warland Singers Commission Award. Uh, this piece is filled with images of nature, mountains, pines, a sea of mist. I'd I'd love to tell I'd, I'd love you to tell us about the creation of this piece, especially your collaboration with Charles Anthony Silvestri. Yeah, this was. What a wonderful project this was, um, and and I, I couldn't be happier with with the result, especially the the, the performance that um, the commissioning ensemble did with the Ansan City Choir. Um, that's, that's actually thankfully captured in the video, because it was unbeknownst to us broadcast on South Korean uh, Arts Channel. Oh wow! Uh, which was great, and so. Um, uh, Peter Park, who's a Korean American conductor in Missoula, Montana, uh, conducted a group called uh, Dolce Canto, and so he we had known each other for a number of years, and he approached me and said, "Hey, let's let's consider doing something together." And he said, "Here's the project: we're going to be going to South Korea on tour, and so I'd like to have a piece that would be appropriate for that tour." And so we talked about various themes, and we talked about the th especially the theme of, you know, of the, the the separate Koreas, right? South Korea and North Korea, the fact that they used to be one, the fact that culturally, familially, people are separated. You know, families that used to be unified are separated now because they happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they can't get, you know, back and forth across the border, and so. He said, I'd love to do a piece that kind of addresses that. And so we talked about that, and we talked about the whole concept of reunification, which, of course, is a very controversial subject. Um, but we wanted to address it in, in an aspirational way, uh, in, in the sense of hope, you know, that, that that might someday happen so families can be reunified, so that there can be, um, be peace, essentially. Um, but we... You know, Peter was very clear. He said, we can't address this explicitly. It has to be addressed uh, more obliquely. And so um, he had, I think he had worked with, with Tony before, and he suggested that Tony uh, Silvestri be the one to, to do the, the poem, which I was just, of course, thrilled at. I thought, wow, the opportunity <laughs> to work with Tony. And he's just awesome. And so um, we, we all met at uh, the Course America conference where we actually got the award in 2014. And um, we met with Tony and shared the idea and um, talked through it. And he came back with this marvelous poem that's so full of so many different images and uh, images of that culture and of the earth, air, fire, water. Um, and he used the Korean, South Korean flag as a as a kind of an icon of, of this, mm. but his kind of the core image is that of two pines, these two majestic pines on a mountaintop that above ground look separate, but below ground their roots are entwined with one another. And I mean, can you think of a better metaphor for the two Koreas and yeah. those familial sort of, of and cultural uh, commonalities underground that can't be seen? Yeah, absolutely. How how was it working with a a living composer who, or, or poet who's writing something specifically for you? Oh, it, it was marvelous because he really he is so sensitive to the fact that his his poetry will be set to music. So um, you know, just the way he approaches language, the way he approaches vowels, it, it's much more kind of rich with vowels um, to be sung, and so. Um, and he's so thoughtful about the imagery, and uh, and you know he he basically said, if part of the, if any part of this poem isn't working for you, tell me and we'll we'll rework it. So, um, yeah, he, he was very very collaborative. That's fantastic. All right, let's take some time and listen to the stars still shine.
Next, let's go to When All is Done for SATB Choir and Trumpet, written in memoriam of Matthew Shepard, who was brutally and tragically killed in 1998, but also dedicated to all victims of hatred and oppression. So I know that you have several pieces that deal with sort of social justice issues. What do you do as a composer when you work with such intense, heavy themes like this? Well, in this case, um, my friend Nicole Lamartin, who's the director of choral activities there um, at University of Wyoming, uh, brought this project to mind. And so first, what, what text do you use, right? Right. Um, and so it's, it's always, almost always about finding the text. And so there's a collection of, of poems that were written by a number of people um, about Matthew. Uh, I think the collection is called Scarecrow, or at least the, one of the most well-known poems from that is called Scarecrow. So I looked through that, and I thought, you know, for whatever reason, and, and this is really the thing about, and you know, Steve, as a composer, mm -hmm. right? Finding the right text is it's the, the holy grail right. sort of search, right? And uh, for me, if I don't, if, if I don't have a musical reaction or some kind of other reaction, sometimes it's it's colors. I, I'm not a full synesthete, but I have some some degree of synesthesia. Um, and so if I don't hear some kind of music or have a musical reaction to the text, then I just, I leave it, right? Um, and so I just wasn't getting that reaction from those texts. Um, and so I thought, oh, I need to rethink this. And as I rethought it, I came up with this notion that, well, you know, I could make it very specific to Matthew, but, um, as with many of my pieces, I like to take something that may be a specific sort of event and uh, universalize it, make it more universal so more people can relate to it and so that, that that theme has a more universal appeal and universal message. So as I thought more about it, um, I thought, well, you know, what, what are some of the, the attributes of what Matthew went through? Well, hatred, oppression, um, and these sorts of things, and I thought, is there a more maybe universal or a more um, uh, historical sort of approach I could take to it? And I, I don't even know why I turned to the poetry of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, but I did. And he's, he's, he's basically the first prominent African-American poet um, after Phyllis Wheatley, um, who if, if, if you all don't know who Phyllis Wheatley is, please read her work. She's an astonishing person in, in, uh, in African-American history. I was, um, I was recently just introduced to her work. Yeah, it's yeah. phenomenal. I mean, she's a phenomenal character. Um, but I have this big, thick collection of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and I thought, oh, it's time I turn to it. And I, I stumbled on this poem, When All Is Done. And I thought, this is it. This is the message, because it has a very, a very powerful message. And it's the... Um, it's the it, it's one of those poems that's written from the grave, right? So it's the voice of the the poet or the voice of the narrator speaking from the grave to those who are still living, and how how he wants to be remembered. And I thought, well, oh, perfect for for Matthew. Um, and so when I read the poem initially, I, I heard it in, in in Dunbar's voice, and I read it again. And I thought this could be Matthew, and I read it again, and this could be all victims of hatred and oppression. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's how I approached that. But then I thought, what am I going to do musically? And um, this is, I don't think this is in any of the notes you would have read. Um, I thought when I approach one of these pieces, as you said, I try to, if it's a historical event, I try to really delve into that event and understand that event. So I did a lot of reading about the event itself, the trial, the aftermath, um, and I read Dennis Shepard, Matthew's father's, uh, what's called the victim statement, right? Which is read at the, the uh, part of the trial. Very moving. And so I thought I need to, because I mean, one of the things that I'd like to try to do is, is develop a sense of compassion in people when they hear about these things, evoke that sense of compassion. So I thought I need to put myself in Matthew's position. So, you know, Matthew was, um, was basically tied to a fence, right, outside of Laramie, and they beat him senseless. Um, and I imagine, what was it like for Matthew? 
And so, you know, he drifted in and out of consciousness for probably 18 hours, right, until he was finally found. I thought, what would Matthew have been thinking? And I thought, he would be thinking, where, where is somebody? Why won't they, why can't they find me? Why can't, why can't somebody come help me? Nobody knows what's going on. And immediately I thought of the spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And so that became kind of a contest firmus, almost like a, instead of a corral motet, it was based on a spiritual. And so that became the, the, the core material. But then the third stanza um, is, is, is this, For I have suffered loss and grievous pain, the hurts of hatred and the world's disdain, and wounds so deep that love, well tried and pure, had not the power to ease them or to cure. And I thought, what am I going to use for that? And one of the deputies um, is a woman who was summoned out to, to help Matthew. Because a, a guy on a bicycle went by and saw Matthew and called the police. And it was so moving. She said that when she found Matthew, that his head and his face were all caked in blood because they'd been beaten in the head and bleeding severely. Um, except for these two kind of white streaks, flesh-colored streaks below his eyes where he'd been crying. And I just thought, oh God, that's, you know, that cuts right to the core of our humanity. And uh, so I thought those, those kind of those stripes of, of tears and immediately what came to mind was, and with his stripes, we are healed from Messiah. And I thought, what if I could extend that concept to Matthew, right? Regardless of, you know, there's a lot of controversy around this, this, this killing and, Regardless of how you interpret it, um, could we not be healed by his stripes as well? So that's why I chose that for that particular stanza. Yeah, and I love this piece because it sort of blurs that line between sacred and secular that we talked about before. All right, well, let's take some time and listen to a bit of When All is Done.
All right. Well, John, lastly today, let's turn to your epic World War One oratorio. But who shall return us our children? A Kipling passion. That little old thing. <laughs> that little old thing. Yeah. So this work commemorates the death of Jack, Rudyard Kipling's son, during World War One and the impact his death had on his family. But I feel like this this family is more of a symbolic representation of the loss suffered by so many during World War One and of the larger impact that the world felt. I'd love to hear more about the creation of this piece and your experience getting intimately familiar with the Kipling family. Well, yeah, you know, here you have a family of, of great celebrity, of great renown, and um, their experience with their son John being killed um, basically brought them down to the level, as it were, if I can use that, that phraseology, down to the level of everyone. Um, and there's a, I think there's a point in, in Carrie Kipling's diary where she says, you know, we're no different from anybody else. Everybody else has suffered the same thing we've suffered. Um, and there was that sense of, of almost an egalitarian sort of sense that they became kind of the every family. And, and there's something powerful, I think, about taking a family of celebrity and helping to kind of bring them to our level, right, so that we can all relate to them. And so um, this piece actually had its genesis in uh, the earlier oratorio I wrote called Pieta, um, which was also commissioned by Carl Arts Northwest. And, uh, you know, I have to, to give extreme gratitude and thanks to my friend and colleague uh, Robert Bodie, the conductor of, of Carl Arts Northwest, um, because he really embraced this these projects. And so he embraced the initial project of Pieta, which is about compassion and mercy and, and such. But in it, uh, I, I set a, um, a, a letter by John Kipling, his final letter to his parents. And um, it was a, a remarkable text. I stumbled on that letter because I was looking for letters from mothers to sons or sons to mothers that were written during wartime. And I looked at some others, like from the Civil War and that sort of thing. And Robert, I agreed. Robert is a fantastic dramaturg, by the way. He reviewed draft after draft after draft and revision of the libretto for, for uh, Pieta and also for Kipling Passion. So I owe him a great debt of thanks. Um, what we agreed to be really powerful if we have you know, these letters. So I looked at a whole bunch. I just wasn't finding anything. So I got fed up one night, and I got up from my desk. And I went and I sat in my recliner chair, turned on the TV, and it was on PBS. And what was on there was this scene in front of a house of Daniel Radcliffe in a military uniform. And, uh, and this actor I recognized from some other films, David Haig. And I thought, what is this? Is Harry Potter goes to war? I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know what this was. And so I finally figured out that it was this, this movie, this BBC movie called My Boy Jack. And it was based on a play that David Haig had written, who bears quite a resemblance to Rudyard Kipling. Anyway, so I found this letter, and um, I thought, this is it. This is what I'm going to use. So I, I thought, I either need to go back and transcribe it, you know, get the video and go back and transcribe it, or see if I can find it. And I did eventually find it um, online. So uh, that was the genesis. And Robert and I kept talking after we premiered Pieta, which was, I think, 2012. And we thought, you know, it'd be great to take that story and expand it into a full-length oratorio. And that's what we did. So that was really the genesis of, uh, of the Kipling Passion. And it just happened to be time, timely uh, for the centenary of World War I. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to listen to some highlights from the Kipling Passion. Doesn't say grace before meals. He walks and talks, my babe has grown. Was ignorant, but now is known. Was hidden from the earth so
tell you uh, that I'm working on something that I can't tell you about. <laughs> um, unfortunately, um, it's, a, it's about a 20-minute piece, and um, hopefully it will be announced sometime uh, later in 2021, uh, what it is and where it will be performed. I can tell you that it will be premiered in 2022, um, but I can't say anything more than that <laughs> I'm contractually obligated to keep it under wraps um, right. but it's a great project I'm so excited about it um, but like so many composers you know there's not a lot of commissions uh, on deck right now um, so as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview I'm, I'm taking this time to kind of <clears throat> regroup and, and get things ready for when the floodgates open again right yeah, so speaking of your website, could you plug your website right now and tell people where they can find you online? Sure, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, johnmuleisen.com. So uh, J-O-H-N-M-U-E-H-L-E-I-S-E-N.com. And are you out on social media anywhere? Um, I, I have my own Facebook profile. I don't have my artist page yet. That will be coming hopefully sometime in the next couple of months. And newsletter and, and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, when you're a full-time composer, you're a business person, right? Absolutely. And so it's, it's all about uh, doing all that marketing and uh, uh, marketing is an unending task. Um, and there's, we have so many different avenues now, which is fascinating to have all these different avenues. And how do you optimize those so you can get your name out? I mean, a lot of it is just relationship building, right? Which is the drag right now, not being able to go to conferences. Right. Right? Because that's, I mean, conferences are kind of part reunion with people you already know, part uh, uh, icebreaker for people you haven't met yet, and, and part just relationship building. Yeah. Well, John, I really appreciate you joining me today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining me on Movable Dough. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been a joy. My guest today was composer John Muleisen. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movabledough. If you'd like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by John Muleisen, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Dough Listeners, and follow us on Instagram at Movable Dough Podcast. If you have a recommendation for a future guest, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>